If I were to ask you, by the way, it'll be in a chapter five of Mark's gospel. If I were to ask you, give you a piece of paper and, a, and some Crayolas, crayons, and ask you to draw a picture of the devil, I have an idea that most of you would draw a little man in a red suit with a pointed tail, pitchfork, and horns. That's what we, that's our concept of him. I knew this preacher that had a, a little caricature of the devil. He, he kind of moved around and put in inconspicuous places in his study. And he's a, really a gross looking thing. And he said he could just watch and people would be talking in a normal conversation and all of a sudden they would see that thing, you know. <laughs> and it would just be this kind of a, you know, blank look. And he said it had a little trigger on it that you could, it was obvious that you were to push this trigger and when he would push this trigger, a little sign would come up, say welcome on there. He said it used to say go to hell, but he found that to be a little bit, <laughs> a little bit too offensive. And, <laughs> and so he changed the sign. <laughs> it said welcome. Well, um, those caricatures of the devil are the farthest thing from the truth of what he is and what he is like. But they are a classic example of the way we think. And as long as we think that way about the devil, he has a definite advantage over us. As a matter of fact, if I... Um, uh, understand my humble and accurate opinion, he would like for us to believe two things about himself. One is that he does not exist. And if we won't buy that, he wants us to believe that he's a little man in a red suit with a long pointy tail with pitchfork and horns. C.S. Lewis has a great little classic book called Screwtape Letters. How many of you have read that book? If you haven't, you need to get it. It's really, um, C.S. Lewis, by the way, uh, was a, a tremendous intellect. Died on the day that Kennedy was assassinated. So he is contemporary, somewhat contemporary. And this little book is, is a, a letter written by um, uh, Screwtape, the uncle of Wormwood, and they are demons. And he, um, in, in this in these letters, he, he refers to the devil as the high command. The people being tempted are called patience, and God is called the enemy. And in lesson seven, I mean, in letter seven, this is what he says. I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential. Oh, by the way, dear Wormwood, I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance of your own existence. That question is at least for the present phase of the struggle has been answered for us by the high command. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. Of course, this has not always been so. We're really faced with a cruel dilemma. When the humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all the pleasing results of direct terrorism and we make no magicians. On the other hand, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists and skeptics, at least not yet. 
I've great hopes that we shall learn in due time how to emotionalize and mythologize their science to such an extent that what is in effect a belief in us, parentheses, though not under the name, will creep in while the human mind remains closed to belief in the enemy. The enemy is God, you see. But in the meantime, we must obey our orders. I, I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help us. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, parenthesis, it is an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. I think that you and I fail miserably in dealing with him because we really don't understand him. And we fail miserably in him because our concept of him is like the concept of mythology and opinions that he is such. And I have a feeling that he has caused more people to die and fall into the pit because they believe in him that way than for any other reason. What is he like? You don't often hear people describe him as the angel of light, but that is what he is. And very few people call him Lucifer, which means son of mourning, M-O-R-N-I-N-G, but that is what he is. He is the most appealing, attractive, winsome, beautiful, intelligent being that God ever created. And no enemy will ever be resisted until he has brought into proper focus to be what he really is. Merle Unger has a controversial book called Invisible War, and whatever else you think about that book, listen to this statement. Surely one of Satan's greatest stratagems has been the attempt to keep men in ignorance of the real nature of his being and the fraudulent dimensions of his pretensions. It was Baudelaire who said, quote, the devil's, the devil's cleverest ruse is to make men believe that he does not exist. For multitudes of people, generally among the more highly educated, the idea of a devil is something to be received with an amused tolerance. Denis de Roman said this, The first trick of the devil is his incognito, God says, I am he who is, but the devil who is possessed with a desire to imitate the truth in twisting it, saying to us, like Ulysses to the Cyclops, I am nobody. What are you afraid of? Are you going to tremble before the non-existent? Now, if I'm able to do anything tonight, I want to do two things. 
I want us to, I want us to, if there's any doubt in our minds before we leave, I want us to come to grips with the fact that the devil is a real being. And secondly, I want to explode the myth, if I can, that the devil is anything like what you're used to thinking of him, a little caricature, comic caricature, in a red suit. He is light years away from that. Now, if you're following in your outline what the devil is not. The devil is not a nobody. That is, he is and he is real. Um, just had a little conversation with him here a while ago, so I happen to know that he's still, you know, alive and kicking. He is, and he is engaged in this invisible war with each of us. He is persuasive and appealing. He is attractive, and he knows exactly how to turn your crank and push your button. He knows where every chink in your armor resides. I tell you, he knows more about you than you know about him. And he studied you much more than you have ever studied him. Second, he is not a comic character or a caricature. He's not a medieval character dressed in a red uniform or suit. Third, he is not all-powerful. He'd love for us to think that he is. And the only one, the only person who is helpless in dealing with him is a person who doesn't know Jesus Christ. The only person who does not have power against him is the person who does not know the power of Jesus Christ. James said, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober, be vigilant for your adversary. And by the way, that is the strongest word in the Greek language for alien force. Be sober, be vigilant for the alien force or power walks about seeking whom he may devour. What is he? What is he is not what he is. Number one, he is alive and relentlessly at work. He is alive and relentlessly at work. He never takes a break. And I don't suppose that anybody would argue the fact that he has never been any more powerful in the history of man. He, he is relentlessly at work. He is deceptively brilliant. Although he is not omnipresent, he cannot be everywhere at the same time. He can be only one place at one time. He has demons who assist him, in my humble and accurate opinion. Now I'm going to say something, and I deeply believe, it may sound a little bit uh, off the wall, I deeply believe that everybody here tonight has been assigned one demon at least, and that person of the underworld knows everything about you. The prince of darkness, one demon assistance, 
assistant to the to a Lucifer has been assigned to you and knows everything about you. Second, he is anything but funny. Now you'll hear me make a lot of jokes and I love to, to cut up, but you'll never hear me joking about the devil. There's nothing funny about the devil. There is nothing amusing about the occult. Don't get involved in it. There is nothing hilarious about books written on the demonic world. Don't read them, young people. And why would you ever in the world get up in the morning and read your horoscope? Don't mess with that kind of stuff. Stay away from it. There's nothing funny or amusing about it. We're talking about serious things. Third, he is limited in power and authority. We as Christians have no reason to run scared. For the enemy cannot get to the person who is operating in the power of God. One of my favorite songs is A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Now Martin Luther had a real deep belief in the devil. As a matter of fact, one time while he was translating the Old Testament from his Hebrew Bible, he was so aware of the, of the presence of the devil that he picked up an ink bottle and hurled it at him. One of the, one of the uh, stanzas of a mighty fortress of our, in a, of our a mighty fortress of our God goes like this. And though this world with devil's field should threaten to, out, to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fail Him. You know what that little word is? Christ is that little word. Jesus is that little word. Miller Jenkins told one night that he woke up in the middle of the night strangely aware of the presence of the devil. And he said there was this coldness in the room and he feared for his life. He was aware of this presence almost visible in his room. And he said he knew that it was the presence of the, of the devil himself. And he said, I cried out in the night, Jesus, Jesus, and I was conscious of the excess exodus of this demonic being. Holy cow. Now I want you to go to Mark chapter 5 verses 1 through 5. The most extensive passage on demonism in the scripture. And I want us to look at this from three angles. First of all I want us to look at the victim verses 1 through 5. Read it along with me. And they came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. When he had come out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles, chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him. 
the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. And constantly night and day among the tombs and in the mountains, he was crying out and gashing himself with stones. Now the best way to uh, read the story of this uh, demonized man, by the way, let me say this, that um, the scripture doesn't refer to demon-possessed men. It refers to demonized men, although it uses the term demon-possessed. Really, literally, he was demonized, and there is a difference, and we'll look at it in a moment. The best way to look at this demonized man is to see it in the other Gospels. For example, Luke 8 and Matthew 8. Now, I've taken the uh, time to make a list of what this man, uh, the, how he was characterized by these three gospel writers. Listen to this list. He was living among the tombs. He was unable to be restrained. He was great in strength. Not even chains or shackles could hold him. He couldn't restrain himself or resist anything. Psychologists today would describe him as being in the manic stage of a depressive psychosis. He was suicidal. He cut himself. He was in a state of torment. He was exceedingly violent. He had not been clothed. He was living among the dead. He was in a disastrous state of mind. This man was helpless, hopeless, pathetic, was the victim. Now, as I read this, I observed that this event, this episode, this encounter with the demonized man occurred immediately following the boat trip. Now, you remember in, in chapter 4, Jesus and his disciples got in this boat, and it was night. And they begin to cross this, this uh, Lake of Galilee. Those of you who have been to the Holy Land have made that trip across the Lake of Galilee, one of the best parts of the trip because other places, you don't know whether that's the real place or not, but, but you know they don't move lakes around, you know, and change those up. So going across this Lake of Galilee, this guide of ours pointed over there and said, that's where the city of the Gerasenes was. And just to hear about that was a, you know, you, you kind of expected drum rolls, you know, and, and deep violin music or whatever. It happened at night. There, there is nothing, you know, it was a, there's nothing in the scripture that, that suggests that anything occurred between their departure and their trip across the lake and this encounter with this man. So what happened was this encounter happened at night, adding to the eeriness of the moment how much weaker we are at nightfall, how frightened we are and our children are, unfortunately, of the night. So here in the dark of the night, in, on this man's turf, Jesus encounters this violent, suicidal maniac and has absolutely no fear. Now, I want to do a little word study here with you, kind of parenthetically, to help us understand what this victim is like. 
first of all, to look at what the word demon means. Interestingly enough, that word means knowing or intelligence. Now watch this. Intelligence is the most prominent characteristic of demons. You can't outthink them. You can't outfox them. They're more brilliant than you are. They are of superior knowledge. Did you hear that? One of the most prominent characteristics of the demonic is that the demon has superior intelligence to human intelligence. Now we are often attracted to people of superior intelligence, of superior intellectual ability. And the devil is this, these, this demonic world of superior intelligence. These creatures do things to attract our attention, things that we cannot explain. Now, I have listened to the stories of people who have dealt with the occult, and I have listened to people who have been involved in the demonic underworld, with the demonic underworld. And the thing that always emerges from the conversation is, is that this must be supernatural because we are aware of things for which we have no explanation whatsoever. They are of superior intelligence. Second, demons are spirits. They do not possess a material body. Now they are able to enter into and control a human body and they're able to speak and act through a human body from time to time. But because they are spirits, they are not normally subject to human perception. That is, they are invisible. They are invisible. Now, um, would you imagine that as you drive home tonight in your automobile, <laughs> you, this invisible being, that'll uh, humble you a little bit on your way home while you... They, it says of this demon that he was unclean. Word means vile. Now back to the victim. The victim is demonized. He is in the advanced stages of demonism. He cannot keep from cutting himself. He cannot keep from attracting people. And he runs through the night naked. Let's move to the deliverance until he met Jesus Christ. Verses 6 through 13. And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. Now remember that demons don't bow down because they don't have physical bodies. This man was bowing down. And he's caught in this trap. Now, here is this man who is extremely violent. He is out of control. He is in a manic state of depressive psychosis. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he bows in his presence. And he has control of this man's voice box, so he speaks with the man's voice box. Listen to it. 
What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God. Amazing statement. I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Jesus had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. He had heard words of hope. And the demon spoke through his lips. Now don't you ever think for a moment that demons don't know God and respect him. As a matter of fact, demons know God better than you do most of you, and demons fear God more than you fear Him, most of you. A demon recognizes Jesus, and our next door neighbor doesn't, you know, whoever that is, okay. I'm saying that in a general term, by the way, <laughs> in case my next door neighbor is watching. <laughs> oh, mercy. <laughs> Chapter 2 of James' epistle. James 2. You're loving it, aren't you, Joe Barrett? Chapter 2, verse 19. I want you to look at Chapter 2 of James, verse 19. Little, little book over the New Testament, over at the end, James 2. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. The word in the Greek means they bristle in horror. They bristle in horror. Now, if I said to you, they have more respect and fear of God than you do, do you bristle? in respect when you hear his name. Now back to Mark chapter 5, verse 9. Jesus asked his name. Now there are two uh, ideas or theories about that. One is, is that he was identifying the demon and those who have uh, deliverance gifts, and I don't have deliverance gifts, um, I know people that do have deliverance gifts. And if I ever um, run into what I think is someone who has uh, a demon or is demonized, I'll certainly call on people who have deliverance gifts. Um, Dr. Newport at Southwestern Seminary, the smartest man I've ever met, reads a book a day. I mean, not... Not a cartoon book, I mean, a book a day. It has deliverance gifts. He travels all over the world, by the way. Spends weeks at a time in houses of men who are demonized to deliver him, them from demons. Um, those who have deliverance gifts believe, say, that in order to help one who is demonized, you have to identify the demon. You find his name because the name is the, of the demon is who he is. 
There's another theory concerning this, and that's Barclay's theory, for example. He's saying that he is speaking to the, end of, to the man, what is your name, because he had lost his identity. And what he's saying in essence is, let's go back to the place of your origin, where you came from, man. To the place of your origin, where you came from, man. Your help is in God. Whatever the answer is, he replied, my name is Legion. Now a legion was a military group of 6,826 troops. He was a man demonized, victimized by multiple demons. Now you might think that he was saying, I am legion, we are legion, because in essence like this, well, like you would say, you know, well, man, there was a million things I have to do today. You don't mean you have a million things to do. You mean I got a bunch of things, a lot of things to do. But I, I, I happen to believe that he meant that literally, that he was demonized by 6,826 demons, a, a bunch. Look at verse 10. And he began to entreat him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, have you looked at that verse with some curiosity in the past? I have. Now, when you look at the uh, harmony to these, the, the, other the other gospel's account of this, Luke chapter 8, verse 31, he said, don't send us into the abyss. And Matthew verse, chapter 8, verse 29, he says, have you come to torment us before the time and obviously or evidently he means that there is a time when these demons are going to be cast into the abyss of torment. And this demon or these demons, this one speaking with this man's voice box, was aware of this time when he would be cast into the abyss. And he was saying, are you going to do this before the time? Are you going to cast us into the abyss before the day? Now, whatever else it means, the backside of that is a, is a, is a wonderful fact that these, these demonic creatures are doomed creatures. And every day that they exist, every day he plays is one day less of his existence, that each day one lives of these demons, he's closer to the doom and darkness to which he has been assigned. And they rather, they rather live in a human body. Now verse 14, the results. And their herdsmen ran well, he gave them permission. By the way, let me look at verse 12. Let's pick it up there. And the demons entreated him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter them. And he gave them permission. Huh. Demons can't do anything without his permission. And he gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, more than one for each swine. And they were drowned in the area, in the sea. 
And their herdsmen ran away and reported it to the city and out in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed. Now watch this carefully. Sitting down, this guy couldn't be still. He was running in the night, restless and distressed. He's sitting down. He's clothed. Now, I need to say this in all seriousness. How much you have been released from the power of the evil one can be determined in large degree by how much you wear or what you wear. When he was delivered from the demonic, he got clothed. He now, he was restless and unable to be still. He's now sitting down. He was naked. This is the result. Now he is fully clothed. He was out of his mind, and now he is in sound mind, totally unaware of his appearance, his actions, and his words. What a change. But verse 15 has an interesting thing happen. Or verse 16, and those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. Notice that, underline it, and all about the swine. And they began to entreat him to depart from their region. Why? Because in the bottom of verse 15 it says, and they became frightened. Now, the, 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 the significant thing is you got this wild man running through the country and they're obviously frightened, but doesn't say that about it, him. But what frightened them was the threat that Jesus would bring to their life, maybe to their, to their livelihood. Um, isn't, it, isn't it interesting? that Jesus is a greater threat to some folks than demons are. When we, we've been doing this uh, fresh encounter, it's been a wonderful experience for us. And so a couple of weeks ago in our fresh encounter group back there, I asked some of them about how are they feeling about this. You know what the common consensus was, Jeff? We, you could answer those of us who were there. The common consensus was that this um, investigation of a fresh encounter with God that deals, it, it goes to the heart of God is a threat, is a frightening thing. What's going to happen when I get zeroed in on God? What's he going to ask of me? What's he going to require of me? What's he going to do in my life? Am I ready for that? It's a frightening thing. It's frightening to them. And so they ask him to leave. And I tell you, Jesus will never stay where he's not wanted. So he took off. He left. He split. That's the result of it. Folks wanted him out. And he left. And there's this witness that comes. Look at it. 
And as he was sitting in the boat, getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was begging him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. He became a witness for Jesus, for Jesus Christ. Now I want to say three things in application. Most of you um, young people have just heard of Joe Lewis by name, the Brown Bomber. When I was a kid, uh, listened to Friday Night at the Fights. Uh, out of Madison Square Garden, Joe Lewis was a was my uh, boxing hero. He had 71 professional fights and lost only one. He, he um, uh, defended his heavyweight title more than any other heavyweight in history. And one night, Bill Stern, the man who, who was uh, the sports announcer of most of Lewis's fights, asked him how he could maintain such a such a record as that, how he could keep on defending his title and winning his title. 71 professional fights. His answer was simple. I was never surprised and I stayed on the offense. Pretty good strategy. How do you deal with the devil? You must never be surprised at what he does. You must know what he is and what he's like. And you must stay on the offensive. Three things. Put on and wear the full armor of God. Young people, take, get Ephesians chapter 6 and read verses 10 through 18 until you know what it says. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, the stratagem of the devil. Put on and wear the whole armor of God. Now this armor is invisible and it includes the spoken word of God tucked away in your heart. And every morning before you leave for school and every morning before you leave for work and before you encounter the day, you need to be fully armed with the armor of God. Put on and wear the full armor of God. Number two, resist the enemy in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're right, Charlotte. There is power in the name of the Lord and in the blood of the Lamb and in the testimony of the saints. Put on the armor of God. Resist the enemy through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And three, walk in faith by the Spirit of God. Now he tells us to walk in faith, not run. That is, we can go to extremes. I want to warn now 
against extremes. There, it, it happened a few years ago where some leading um, uh, Southern Baptists got into uh, this matter of demons and went to the extreme. One, I heard a guy give his testimony, he said, I tried to put my key in my lock and there were demons in it pushing it out. That, that, now, that, you know, that's, well, I'll reserve my comment on extremes. You can see demons in everything. There's this church where the pastor is casting out demons all the time. And this saintly lady one day walked up to her and said, I identified seven demons in you. You see demons in everything. I warn against extremism. He said, walk in faith by the Spirit of God. And the concluding statement is this. You win if you have Jesus Christ. If you don't have Jesus Christ, there is no hope for you. Let's settle that right now. Let's bow our heads. Now, if you're in this place tonight, you can be sure. He knows everything about you and every chink in your armor. You have absolutely no defense against him if you don't have Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you don't have Jesus as your personal Savior, I want you to pray in your heart right now. Jesus, I ask you to come into my life and save me. Save me not just from the enemy, but for life in fullness. Jesus, come into my heart. I know that I have no defense in this evil world apart from your power. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Would you pray that prayer, Lord Jesus, come into my heart and live in my life. May the darkness that's there disappear in the light. Now, I mean, let me help you pray. Lord Jesus, I want you to be my Savior and Lord. I want, I want you to know I'm sorry for my sin. I want you to forgive my sin come into my life. Take control of my heart and life, my thoughts, my will. I give you my life. I trust you, Jesus, to be my Savior and Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me.